When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. So today I had Hallie Rubenhold back on the podcast to talk about her book The Five, The Untold Lies of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Hallie has had so much success with this book and quite rightly so. She says herself, the victims of Jack the Ripper were never just prostitutes. They were daughters, wives, mothers, sisters and lovers. They were women, they were human beings. Hallie amazingly brings light to this, to this cult, this myth of Jack the Ripper, and actually the truth behind the women's lives and the women who were killed by him in such a brutal circumstance. Hallie's a social historian and her expertise really does lie in revealing the stories of previously unknown women. And The Five has changed the narrative of these murders forever. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hallie goes into so much detail about her research and about the women whose voices have been previously unheard. Hallie Rubenhold, welcome back to Hidden Histories. Hi, nice to be back. I mean, you're my first return guest, but I think this particular podcast is... Um, is going to be the the big one and this is actually the subject that you were working on at the time that we recorded the first one that's right and so i think we're going to have an opportunity to really talk about all of those things which i didn't really go into much detail about when we spoke for the first time so congratulations because the five the untold lives of the women killed by jack the ripper has been so so successful I mean it feels like every single week you're getting um, another nomination or another prize and you had um, the huge event winning winning the Bailey Gifford prize last year congratulations thanks yeah and um, I've been uh, shortlisted for the Wolfson prize in history you have you have and very so well deserved because I think that this book was a long time coming um, really for the for, for the subject of history as a whole, I think just this telling of women's history and the addressing uh, the addressing of women's lives in the way that you have is so important. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about a lot within this podcast. So firstly, 
I mean, I think the, the key question is, before we start talking about the women, why have these women received no scholarly attention or even popular attention before you began to research their lives? Well, I think there are lots of reasons for this. I mean, obviously, um, Jack the Ripper has been a focus of so much attention. You know, I mean, literally libraries of books have been written about the subject. And it's always been positioned kind of as a whodunit. Um, So the main concern has been trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper was. It's become almost like a sort of parlour game. Um, and, And part of a cultural legend. And that has something to do with it, because... The whole concept of Jack the Ripper is something which has become almost entangled in fiction. Um, It's been so mythologized that we cease to think of it really as either a legitimate field of study or as um, anything that actually was real or had repercussions for people. Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders have been studied, at first I want to say, in in some detail amongst cultural historians. But actually picking apart the historical events has not really been considered. Um, It's also been thought to be quite a a fringe interest. Um, So it's something which, you know, like, unfortunately, things like the Kennedy assassination and, God forbid, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, you know, somehow goes into this realm of... um, you know, conspiracies slash supernatural. Um, And so therefore it's not really been taken seriously um, by anyone. And, you know, and it's just those sorts of areas that deserve scholarship and scholarly attention. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, everybody is familiar with Jack the Ripper. I think even from, you know, primary school age, it's become this this myth and and a whodunit. And Gosh, it's become like a, a fantasy for so many. Um, but you're right, the, the women haven't really been... I mean, they haven't really been addressed at all. But who were they? Who were the women that were killed by, by Jack the Ripper? Well, I think, you know, uh, as you say, you know, it's, it's important that we know who they are. And obviously we know his name. His name, sadly, is a household name. But we don't know who they are. Um, and that in itself should give us really pause. So their names are uh, Polly or Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly. And um, the interesting thing, well there are many interesting things about these women, but most people don't realise that um, they are not the Hollywoodized images that we have of them in our minds. They were, when they were killed, mostly women in their 40s, with the exception of Mary Jane Kelly, who was around 25 when she died. These women did not come from Whitechapel, and they ended up there at the end of their lives. They had very long lives and lots of life experience. They were mothers, they were sisters, they were wives, they were partners, they were friends, um, and they had people who loved them also. And they came from very different backgrounds. So, for example, Elizabeth Stride actually came from Sweden, 
Catherine Eddowes came from Wolverhampton. Mary Jane Kelly came from Wales. Um, Annie Chapman um, lived on a country estate with her husband. Um, he was a coachman before she ended up in Whitechapel. Polly Nichols was the uh, wife of a printer. You know, their stories are surprising. They also are very much part of working class history and women's history in the 19th century and and that's another reason why they haven't really had a look in because as we know history tends to be written by the victors and history focuses quite a lot on the people with power and not on the dispossessed which they were. So what do you think connected these women to their ultimate fate and I'm not I'm not going to say that being at the hands of Jack the Ripper but more sort of harsh reality of the Victorian London's poor community I mean with all of these um, disparate backgrounds what do you think drew them together to Whitechapel? Well it was a failure of of society really I mean women were considered second-class citizens I mean obviously women had very few rights um even if you were a woman, you know, born into wealth and title, you still couldn't vote. You know, that's that's just one example. But really, society was geared entirely towards not allowing women to be on an equal footing with men in any way. So, for example, women's work didn't pay as much. Women couldn't enter into the professions. It was basically believed that a woman's job was to be a wife and a mother. That was her designated role. There was no other purpose for her in life. And so society wasn't geared around enabling women um, to support themselves. For example, if their uh, male partner or husband left them, if their father died and they had to become the, the main breadwinner, you know, it was very, very difficult to survive. And also society had a lot of expectations about female behavior. So, for example, why it wasn't necessarily thought of as, as, as proper for men to have a lot of sex outside of marriage, it was certainly thought of as normal and natural, whereas a woman who had sex outside of marriage was, was damaged goods, and, um, and that was because obviously women could get pregnant. But, you know, society was, was very stark in its belief in that. However, the interesting thing is, you know, and with history there are always these contradictions, um, working class women and working class men, working class society in general, lived by different sets of rules. And so, for example, there were a lot of people who lived together who weren't married. And society tended to turn a blind eye to it. However, when it wanted to it came down very hard on women. So women were punished for having children outside of wedlock by the social structures and by the establishment. So what would Whitechapel have looked like around 1888? Can you, can you explain what it, would have, what it would have been like for these women living there? Well, Whitechapel itself, I mean, it's it really important to remember, it was just one of many slums in London. So people have this belief that somehow um, Whitechapel was the only place you could go if you were down on your luck, which is completely untrue. And there were slums throughout London. There were slums in places around, well, St Pancras, for example, uh, Westminster and Chelsea, parts of those areas which we uh, imagine to be, you know, quite exclusive today were were known for their their slums places like Bermondsey Lambeth Poplar 
really all over London, parts of Soho. So you, you didn't necessarily have to go to Whitechapel if you were poor. However, Whitechapel became quite notorious. It's also worth mentioning that Whitechapel wasn't just a sink of iniquity. You know, in all of these places, you had people like shopkeepers, pawn shopkeepers, grocers, people, you know, of the middle classes who lived in these areas too. But often what slums amounted to were several very bad streets, which formed a type of nexus in an area. So Whitechapel was pretty bad in that um, there were there were a handful of streets which were just filled with lodging houses and what were called um, furnished rooms. And these were these were just single rooms where entire families could live, you know, a room of eight by ten feet, for example, you know, with extremely bad furnishings, vermin-filled, um, smoking chimneys, broken windows, um, no fresh running water, so people using wastewater, high levels of disease, starvation, vast amounts of social problems. And this is what you would find in Whitechapel. And Whitechapel became one of the most notorious places of deprivation. So you mentioned these women came from, some of them completely opposite backgrounds, what did you find so surprising in your when you began to research them? Because I think there are so many preconceptions about the women in, that who were killed by Jack the Ripper that you've mm. that you've proved otherwise. What did you What did you find the most surprising? Well, what I found most surprising about them. Well, I mean, there were many things I found most surprising, but, you know, obviously the the, the banner headline here is um, the majority of these women, there is no evidence in three of the five cases that they ever were involved in sex work. And when I say no evidence, I mean no credible evidence. You know, for example, we have witness statements that don't actually appear in documents other than two cases, no official documents, for each of these women exist. And because of that, we are reliant upon newspaper articles, which give, uh, give summaries of what was said at their inquests into their deaths. And that's really where we get the body of most information about uh, who they were from. And the witnesses are unreliable. I mean, we just have no way of verifying what the witnesses were saying were true, if they actually knew the women or anything like that. And, you know, also one has to take with a pinch of salt what police say. You know, so here, you know, something which is quite interesting is, you know, when the police were writing up the paperwork when the bodies were found. So, for example, like Polly Nichols, and, the, you know, you've got a little bit, from, you've got a, a line that says name and a line that says, um, you know, last place of residence and a line that says occupation. Now, on the line that says occupation, police officer has written in prostitute. Well, most women who were living, you know, without a husband, without a spouse, without a father, without a home, found on the street late at night, you know, just even a single woman walking late at night was considered a prostitute. However, the year before, in 1887, um, there was a very famous case, the, the case of Elizabeth Cass, who was, Elizabeth Cass was a seamstress, and she'd gone for a walk down Regent Street, where it was known that there was a lot of uh, prostitution. And she had her collar felt by, by a constable, and then she was brought to trial for prostitution. And, and it, it was, you know... She, 
her employer came forward and said, um, this is absolutely unfounded, she works for me, and lots of people came forward with character witnesses, and it turned out that she wasn't. And so as a result of this, the law had to be changed. So in 1887, um, regulations, police regulations, were, were, were put into force, which said a police officer cannot identify a woman as being a prostitute unless she self-identifies as one or unless someone, a man, comes forward at that very moment to the police officer when the woman is there and said, that woman has just solicited me. And so you can see a year later, there's a body lying, um, you know, in the street, and the woman had been out late at night. She was a known alcoholic, and she didn't, you know, she, she didn't have anywhere to live other than a lodging house, which was a very disreputable place. And the police officer is going to write prostitute. In, in, in the bit that says occupation. But by law, by definition, he cannot call her that because she has not identified herself as such. So again, you know, this is a way in which we analyse documents, the way in which we look at documents and try to understand what they're saying. Also, it's important to mention that in all of the death certificates that were drawn up after the inquest, the inquests are where we heard all of the evidence concerning these women's deaths, and we learned as much as we could about the circumstances, and the official decision was that they were not prostitutes, because occupation on the death certificate did not say that. However, it did in the case of Mary Jane Kelly, who was known, who left a large trail of evidence to support the theory that she was involved in sex work. And so, you know, this is very important. And again, this theory, well, I mean, what, what I have written in the book is, is the one thing that has really stuck in the throats of a lot of, a lot of so-called Jack the Ripper experts who are not historians, who do not have the knowledge that historians possess of, of how to contextualise documents, but seem to take things on face value. So how did the press treat the women initially in the wake of these murders? Well, I mean, the press were, I mean, it was a, it was a mixture, really, of, of, of pity and you know, and horror as well, and also sensationalism. And, you know, if you want to sell newspapers, if it bleeds, it leads. And this was a fantastic story for newspapers, because it was a murder mystery, and there had never been anything like it before. This was the first serial killer on the loose. Jack the Ripper seemed to be so good at what he did that he didn't seem to leave any trace. Nobody had any idea who he was. He had the police running in circles around themselves and people were terrified. You know, what could make a better news story than that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. And I think I wanted to actually read a, um, a passage from your book because I think it ties in all of those things together. The idea of the press, the idea that this was um, sensationalist, but also the fact that they're not, you know, that, that, that you prove that they weren't actually just prostitutes. And you do actually, in your conclusion, which is titled Just Prostitutes, you do, you, you do talk about this. And so I just wanted to, um, I wanted to read this, this particular um, section because it, I think that it embodies what you're saying. Okay. The truth of these women's lives was not simple, and then sensationalist 19th century press was certainly not in the business of telling the whole story, nor did any of the editors or the journalists covering this story deem it necessary or worthy of interest to delve with any depth into the victims' biographies. Ultimately, no one really cared about who they were or how they ended up in Whitechapel. The cards were stacked against Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane from the day of their births. They began their lives in deficit. Not only were most of them born into working class families, but they were born female. Now, I think, what do you think this says? You know, the way that these women were treated posthumously then and now. What do you think this says about the way history and historians have treated women's lives and their stories? And the fact that, you know, the fact that we have continued to accept that narrative... Well, I mean, it, it says a lot about us and it says a lot about our ingrained attitudes towards women. You know, I think it's it's taken a lot of time for us to shake off these beliefs. You know, for example, the idea that if a woman is out alone by herself at night, you know, she's not a quote unquote decent woman. And that that I mean, we're still living with that. We are still, you know, we, we still blame rape victims for getting raped. We still, you know, we still are so willing to think that the woman has done something to incur, you know, a rape or a murder. It's extraordinary. I mean, for example, also, you know, not that long ago, roughly, well, just under a hundred years later, the Yorkshire Ripper was was killing women and the police believed he was killing quote-unquote prostitutes and it was only when a you know a decent girl a normal girl was killed that you know everybody got upset about this i mean it's just it's extraordinary it's extraordinary that in the 21st century you know the case of the suffolk strangler that um the judge in the summing up for that felt he had to tell the jury that they must be absolutely certain to drop their prejudices before coming to their conclusion about guilt because, and quote, it didn't matter what these women's lifestyles were, what drugs they took, what they did, that he didn't have the right to kill them. 
Nobody has the right to kill another person. But the fact that that has to be put out there really shows that we have a very long way to go as a society. And also, I think, you know, if you go back through history, you know, it's extraordinary how women's lives have been written about. Again, you know, there's, there's this desire to paint women in, you know, either a very pure light or a very kind of isn't she fun and body and, you know, slightly evil. You know, you think of any women, you know, you think of, you know, Queen Victoria, you know, the way she is, is regarded. And, you know, some people are quite surprised to find that as a young woman, you know, she was full of all sorts of passionate urges and she was, you know, a young woman full of life. And, and, and I think, you know, that's fairly new that we're starting to accept that um, as a society. And I think we, we want our idols to be very pure. We want to, we want to be hero worshippers. And that's extremely unhealthy for us. And women, women really kind of bear the brunt of this still, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's just, there's no room for nuance in, in, a, in a woman's character and the study of women. They're very binary. And as you say, they're either, you know, whores and concubines and she-wolves is, is another one that's used. Yeah. Or, or, they are, or they are pious and gentle and kind. Well, exactly. And, and it's interesting. I mean, we do have to think about, you know, how women have been written about in the past by male chroniclers, you know, and in, in, in female queens, for example, you know, the way they've been discussed, you know, and we have to weigh that up against the realities. And, it's, and I think it's quite hard to get to know female subjects if the only people who have written about them in the past are, are men, and we must always think about that. We've just swallowed this stuff wholesale, you know, in history books about how kind of scheming and, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Borgias, for example, and, and, uh, and, and the Medicis, and, and, you know, and I think we have to start looking at these figures with much more balance than we have until now. No, I completely agree. And something I, I really wanted to ask you um, in relation to exactly that is, with your experience, especially in digging into the lives of these women, how can we apply re those research methods to understand women's lives when history has been dictated and written uh, for so many years by the patriarchy? Mm. I know, it's quite, it's quite difficult. I mean, I think documents are, are, are quite useful but again you know documents contain biases um, we know that I think it's important to think about obviously context always to think about who is who is recording whatever it is that appears on the paper to weigh it up against the common beliefs about women at that time and and what we know about human behavior I mean I think again this is something which is not talked about very much in the, the process of history writing, which is, you know, looking at how human beings behave, you know, the psychology of human beings, you know, where there may not be actual documents that tell us what has happened. For example, how are people likely to behave when they are in a position where they have to survive? How are people likely to be thinking when, you know, five of their children have died? What's going on inside the person? And I think it's really not outside the realm of history to really start considering that and taking 
those aspects of another discipline into consideration when we're examining people from the past. No, I completely agree. I mean, human emotion, yes, it has changed and evolved and developed over time and experience, but it's the same thing. It's those same um, fundamental core psychological principles, isn't it? It is, but also, you know, one has to be very, very aware of, you know, this is where social history comes in, because one has to be very, very aware of what the context is at that time, and how people were likely to believe, and how they regarded things like infant death, and how they regarded things like, you know, one's physical body, and and uh, sex, and we always have to separate out what are modern uh, what our, our modern default settings are, and just always be aware of that. But also, you know, we do have psychology to fall back on, and there are certain things that uh, human beings tend to do in certain circumstances. I think I could talk to you about that for hours, but we're not going <laughs> to do that. Um, so, Hallie, you've done the most fantastic job at liberating these women from the clutches and the, of the of the cult of Jack the Ripper, which is a misogynistic cult that has gone on far too long without um, without intervention. How would you like these women to now be remembered and this story to be told subsequently? Well, I think, I think what I want and what I, I see happening, and again, you know, it's going to be a slow drip drip uh, and it's not going to happen necessarily overnight, but I would really like their stories to be reintegrated into the quote-unquote story of Jack the Ripper. Once you learn these women's stories, once you know who they are, once you understand them, it's very hard just to keep your focus exclusively on Jack the Ripper and naming the killer and the hunt for him and all of these other things because you realize that these people are real human beings and that's incredibly important and so I'm hoping that with time that will actually really change our narrative about Jack the Ripper. Yeah no I yeah I completely agree and I think um I think that's important. I think that history is is human, and that needs to be that needs to be remembered Absolutely. with these with these subjects. Hallie, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Um, I know that you've been so busy and you've had so much publicity surrounding this book. So I really appreciate your time. Um, what are you What are you working on next? It feels it feels like this is a huge thing to follow up on, but I'm sure you will with force. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it. I'm I found that um, you know, true crime is is a really interesting field, and historical true crime is interesting. But turning the lens around on true crime, I think, is something which needs to be done much more often, and that's what I'm going to be doing with my next book because. I'm looking at the murder of Belle Elmore by Dr. Crippen uh, in 1910. And the interesting thing about that is if you remove Crippen from the story, this is a story populated almost exclusively by women. And it's a story about Belle, who he killed, who was a musical singer um, and who had this enormous group of friends who were a proto-union called the Musical Ladies Guild and uh, and how they tried to bring Crippen to justice but also it's a story about Crippen's um, receptionist or his assistant um, Ethel Deneuve who he ran off with and, and who she was and also about Crippen's first wife 
who was a nurse from Ireland who he met in the United States. And the Crippens, both Crippen and、um, Bell, were both American. So the story is a transatlantic story,、um, and it also looks at femicide and it looks at violence against women and how women's stories have been kind of written out of the canon of. True crime historically, because true crime stories certainly in the past have very much gone along the lines of this is a story about male heroes who apprehends male villains and makes society good again, and、um, and the women in this particular story have been. You know their 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 experiences and their involvement have been written out. So I'm going to be looking at it from that aspect. Oh, that sounds that sounds amazing. <laughs> I think it will certainly <laughs> be following. Think、so. I think it will certainly be following the five in、um, level of detail and interest and intrigue. Absolutely. So, how can people、um, see what you're doing at the moment? Are there any online festivals and things that you're that you're going to be、um, working? Yeah,、on? well, there will be coming up the Hay Festival, which is.、Um, Going to be all digital this year, and I'm doing、uh, an event with Lisa Tadeo, who wrote Three Women, and I'm going to be talking about the five, so effectively eight women, about women's experiences, past and present, and that's going to be on the 30th of May, and you can go to the. Hey、uh, Festival website to find out more about that, and also I'm doing、um, something called a Wigtown Wednesday, and the Wigtown Literary Festival again is going digital, and I believe that is going to be, I think it's the fifth of June, but I'm not sure. Please have a look at the Wigtown Festival website, and those are two events I have coming up. For the moment, and you're on Twitter as well, so you you will let, yeah, so you can be followed on there too. Oh well, thank you so much, Hallie, and I really hope that you can get into the archives again soon, so you oh, can oh me too,、um, <laughs> so you can get back into your research. Um, thank you so much, and I hope to have you again on for a third time. Very well, you're very welcome, Helen, and I look forward to it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to eighty nine percent off USPS and UPS rates, and with the Stamps dot com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps dot com. Sign up with code Program for a four week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's stamps. dot com code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by one hundred and sixty one percent. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers twenty four hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. 
Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.